Welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Picard and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. In this episode, we'll be discussing environmental justice litigation. As the global conversation surrounding environmental concerns intensifies, so too do the legal disputes that seek to address them. In this episode, we'll explore the complex intersection of law, environment, and equity, examining the ways in which marginalized communities disproportionately bear the burden of environmental harm and how litigation plays a pivotal role in the pursuit of fairness and accountability. And to discuss these issues, I'm pleased to welcome Aubrey Connor to the show. Aubrey is director of the Center for Environmental and Climate Justice at the NAACP, where she oversees the strategy and collaboration across the association to dismantle environmental racism. Among her many leadership positions, Aubrey is the Young Lawyers Division nominee to the ABA Board of Governors and previously served as the elected Assembly Speaker for the ABA YLD. That's the Chief Policy Officer for the division, and she is also an appointed member of the ABA's Commission on Youth at Risk Advisory Board and Children's Rights Litigation Working Group. Under her leadership, the ABA YLD adopted a resolution, which is now ABA policy, declaring racism as a public health crisis. Aubrey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Just looking over your bio, I mean, your career has had very interesting experiences. You've worked at several public interest agencies. You've also been an associate in the White House Office of Presidential Personnel and the Obama administration. So tell us a little bit about your career path. Well, I will say that uh, coming from a family that um, where I was the first one to actually go to law school, a lot of it was me just trying to figure out how to navigate this area that I had decided that I wanted to go into while I was in college. So I grew up in the South. I I grew up in Florida and I grew up experiencing a lot of issues that ended up now becoming a part of my practice and the advocacy work that I do. When I was in the third grade um, was the first time that I was actually called inward by a student, which made me realize that we still had a long way to go. Even though I was so young, I knew that it was wrong for me to be called that by a student and then for my teacher at the time to blame that situation on me. And I also experienced a number of breathing issues. And I learned later on in my career that um, it wasn't normal (laughs) to have an abuterol pump just as something that you carried around just to do everyday activities. And when I got to college, that was when I started to really be able to put some of the pieces together for the things that I experienced growing up in the global South, which was that a lot of the decisions that were made about my life and the people of my community's life were intentional and that also we were intentionally left out of those conversations. So I decided to go to law school because I wanted to change that 
narrative and and to change that kind of decision-making and power structure for people who had been left out of those conversations. I went to law school in Washington, D.C. As the first one in my family, I was trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean to actually do civil rights work? And so I had the opportunity to work and intern at a number of different agencies, including the U.S. Department of Education and the Civil Rights Office of Civil Rights and Equal Employment Opportunity Services, and then also with Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and a number of other places. And I realized that I really enjoyed the intersection of law and policy and being able to be an advocate for uh, community members. So my career path really has been at its underpinning, ensuring that that is a part of each of my positions. And environmental justice is really the area where I feel like there is the largest intersection of those areas. Um, I experienced environmental injustice myself growing up around phosphate plants and growing up in in a community where we were experiencing a number of uh, toxins and we were never notified or shared that, you know, there might be an environmental impact statement that is upcoming because there's a project that's going to be starting in our communities. So I intentionally then sought out opportunities to make sure that I was fighting on behalf of people who were traditionally left out of those conversations. I worked at the West Harlem Environmental Action Coalition, the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment, um, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and now as the director of the Center for Environmental and Climate Justice at the NAACP, um, I've utilized a lot of the experiences that I've had as a constitutional civil rights attorney, but also learning movement and community lawyering and other positions to really kind of think about what does it mean to be a lawyer in a time where we're experiencing a climate catastrophe. You know, we had one of the hottest summers that we've had ever and it's going to take a number of different tools that are available in order for us to try to get back on target uh, so that we can have a planet uh, to even come back to in the next, I'd say, even several decades. Right. And we'll, we'll get to some of those tools in a little bit. You know, I, I'm also, you know, someone who, whose family did not have these kind of educational experiences. Um, I'm the first person uh, to graduate from college and, and to go to law school in my you know, immediate family. And so the one thing that I think helped me tremendously is having mentors and people to kind of guide me along the way. I'm sure that that's the same with you. Are there any kind of mentors that, that stick out that uh, you would identify as, as folks who really helped you along the way? Yeah, absolutely. I (laughs) did not know where to turn and I had some really helpful uh, bosses uh, at some of my previous positions. And I also, while I was in law school, I would just cold call and reach out to people and kind of share. I have no idea uh, (laughs) kind of how to get to where I'm trying to get to, but it looks like this is what you're doing. So I'd love to just have a conversation. And some of those people uh, took me up on those conversations and helped me to navigate, helped me to understand just what it meant to actually be an environmental justice attorney and how to actually maneuver in that space. And a lot of those individuals I still, you know, reach out to. I still talk to them when I'm making major uh, career and life decisions. 
And I think that particularly, you know, like yourself, Dave, if you're the first in your family to be in that space, you know, your family, my family has always been incredibly supportive, but there's just certain things that I am experiencing for the first time. So having individuals who are able to share their experiences, share, you know, what's worked for them and sometimes what didn't work or things that they wish they had looked at differently has been really helpful in navigating my career. Sure. And, you know, I get calls and emails from law students and uh, young lawyers ask me, you know, hey, I'm really interested in environmental law, but don't know where to start because uh, they don't know environmental lawyers. And it's kind of a, a topic that uh, I think it's hot right now in terms of, you know, thinking about uh, climate change and even environmental justice, but they just don't know where to start. So what, what sort of advice would you give to a law student or a young lawyer who's kind of interested in, in taking your career path or thinking about environmental law? What kind of advice would you give them? I should have mentioned this before, but I'll mention it now, which is for me, I came to this space from a civil rights perspective. And I I feel like it's important to note because the first time I actually heard about environmental law, I was approached by a school and they said, hey, if you come and take this program, do this program, you know, we'll give you a scholarship. And for me, I did not actually understand the intersection of civil rights, racial justice and environmental issues and environmental law. And so I I don't think that you necessarily have to have the traditional path in order to get into that space. I did take environmental law uh, and I also took a, a number of environmental justice courses and things like that to make sure that before I graduated, I understood what I was talking about. But I did not have the traditional science background per se in undergrad um, before I got to law school. So one is to recognize that, you know, if you're still in law school, you can still take environmental law. You can take courses that allow for you to understand the intersection, especially if you are interested in environmental justice. Oftentimes when I'm looking at environmental justice issues, I'm looking at the intersection of constitutional law, environmental law. I may be looking at voting issues or education issues and having a broader understanding of civil rights laws and ways that you can approach housing issues, uh, issues more broadly will help you to be nimble and, and a nimble uh, strategist and tactician within this area. Uh, and so don't, I would say, you know, not to feel like there's one particular path that you have to take to be able to be in this space um, is going to take all of our collective backgrounds to be able to solve these issues. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, a lot of what I tell folks is if you, you know, you're looking to get into environmental, think about even a tangential practice area. You know, one of the things that I do is construction and there's a lot of overlap between um, environmental law and construction law, digging dirt, you're going to find uh bad things um, yes. that need to be cleaned up. So um, totally agree uh, with that um, intersectionality to think about you know, what other practice areas uh, you can rope in. So let's talk about environmental justice. It's a term that I think people have heard about, but they're not, not quite sure what it means exactly. So uh, when you talk about environmental justice, Aubrey, what, what does that mean to you and why is it so important? Well, I think you know, there's a number of different definitions, including a definition uh, definitions that 
the current administration, the EPA utilize uh, when they when they talk about environmental justice. But for me, I really think about environmental justice being able to eat, live, pray and play in the community where you live without any additional barriers or issues that uh, make it harder for you to actually live in your community. And I think that when you look at all of the issues uh, that come up within the environmental justice space, it kind of does boil down to those kind of core areas. Um, And there are a lot of other words and kind of definitions that are important, particularly around uh, thinking about the type of people who have been excluded from being able to access environmental justice. Uh, But that is my high level definition. Got it. And can you give us some examples of, and you said, you know, growing up that you faced these issues, but can you give us some examples of, you know, communities that are more likely to be impacted by pollution concerns and therefore, you know, we want to take a a more narrow focus or, or focus our attention on those communities with respect to environmental justice? Yeah, well, I'll give a story of a report that was done. Now it's been many more than 20 years ago, but back in the 80s, the UCC church uh, commissioned a study called Toxic Waste and Race. And this study was pivotal because of, number one, the time that they were doing a study on environmental issues and they were intersecting it with race. And so they looked at kind of where is pollution? Like, where does it live? Is there a correlation with where there may be toxic pollutants and the racial demographic and makeup of this country? And what they found was that Black communities and communities of color were more likely, and not just like 50%, like three-fourths of the pollution happened to be in communities of color and Black communities. So they did this study and they're like, wow, okay, this is in the 80s. It was revolutionary at the time. And you would think that because that study was done such a long time ago, that things would have changed. So they did the same study, Toxic Waste and Race, at 20, 20 years later. When they did that study 20 years later, um, you would think, again, like I said, the report, the first report is out there. Um, The information is there. So where people decide to put you know, different waste incinerators and different projects that should look differently because they have that information. It looked the same. In some Mm. instances, even worse. And so we continue to see a disproportionate number of toxic waste incinerators, projects that were leading to pollution actually being concentrated in communities of color and in Black communities at really high rates. So people started to ask the question, you know, well, How is it that (laughs) we are 20 years later and this continues to be an issue? Well, the term environmental racism and then the counter of that environmental justice really comes from, you know, this access that that has long been at issue. And even the White House back in the 90s, so President Clinton actually signed executive order Uh, an executive order back in 1994, which stated that the White House and the federal government would acknowledge that environmental justice actually needed to be a part of the conversation and decision-making as it related to environmental decisions. And so 
This isn't necessarily a new topic, uh, but that executive order was pivotal. The problem has always been in the implementation. And even though we have certain executive orders, we have, uh, and I think we may talk about this a little later, you know, this administration actually has signed an executive order to make sure that environmental justice is more of a through line. Part of the problem is that the decisions around where certain projects are located is still somewhat a nebulous concept because there's so many different laws that regulate whether or not a project is going to get an approval. And if you don't have everyone understanding that these decisions are actually harming people and they're deciding, intentionally deciding, that they're not going to put this incinerator in this community because it's quote unquote cheaper there or it's already a sacrifice zone because there's already, to your point earlier, bad soil or things like that, then we'll continue to have environmental injustice and the people who cannot leave, um, they have, you know, they have to live there for one reason or another, then they continue to suffer all the impacts. When you look at Black mortality rate as it relates to um, Black mothers, the numbers are a lot higher And it's actually because of environmental factors um, like heat, the actual air that they breathe. Black adults over the age of 65 are three times more likely to die from air pollution related deaths. So this is what we're talking about when we say environmental justice or environmental injustice. Uh, If your life is actually cut shorter or you're not even able to produce life because of the environment that you're in, then we have a problem. And that's where we are now. Absolutely. And I think we talk a lot about environmental justice from a governmental point of view and whether government will allow you know, permitting for a facility in a particular area. I think it's important also to think about from uh, the corporate, you know, the company point of view. Um, and we've heard a lot of talk about ESG, environmental, social, and governance policies, Talk a little bit about the intersection uh, between environmental justice and ESG policies. Well, at a high level, you know, I think now, particularly because ESG is a topic that is in conversation as it relates to the SEC and, and also companies, quite frankly, wanting to do the right thing or it being seen as a badge of approval <laughs> to ensure that ESG is a part of their everyday thinking, it's important for that space not to have greenwashing. And that is where I see one of the intersections of environmental justice, because if you were looking at ESG policies just for the sake of saying, okay, we're doing something good for the environment in this city, but then you're still over polluting in neighborhoods (laughs) where they've already had a lot of pollution, then you're not actually looking at ESG from an environmental justice perspective. Uh, And so you can still say like, oh, we've cut our emissions, you know, across the country. But if you haven't looked at, for example, where are you cutting those emissions, then you're not looking at your ESG practices and policies with an environmental justice lens. Got it. And that makes a ton of sense. So let's delve into some of the litigation examples of how environmental justice comes into play. I know one of the things that you've talked about in the past is uh, Clean Water Act litigation and how, you know, specifically clean water 
or lack thereof affects communities of color in terms of environmental justice. So talk a little bit about how uh, that litigation has come into play. Well, I will say, so there's a number of, you know, I'll talk about Clean Water Act and I'll also just talk about clean water from an infrastructure perspective as well, because both are important. Um, And I think that the Supreme Court, while a lot of folks have been looking at, you know, how is the Supreme Court going to move as it relates to voting, as it relates to education, it is also really important to look at these decisions as it relates to environmental issues. Clean water, just at a high level, even before we get into litigation, it is an area where we have seen the least amount of investment for infrastructure, uh, for fixing water issues in Black communities. So I've done a lot of work in Jackson, Mississippi. They faced a water crisis last year. And because the state of Mississippi had decided that they were not going to approve funding that came from the federal government, and only they only approved funding in three of the last 25 years, when Jackson, this majority Black city, 83% Black capital city in Mississippi, when they faced a water crisis, they were not able to rebuild. And it came into national kind of, you know, headlines because it's like, how is it that the state capital um, is not able to get access to clean water? And how is it that the governor is, quite frankly, allowing for something like this to happen in 2022 mm-hmm. and then now in 2023? But the issue that happened in Jackson is not novel. It's not new. It's been happening for a number of years for Jackson is going to take a lot of money. And when I say a lot, like more than hundreds of millions of dollars in order to fix the water issues. And that's because there's been a disinvestment an intentional disinvestment in black communities and then being able to have um, pipes and infrastructure to have clean water. So when you look at those issues and We know that this is happening in Black communities all across the country because of intentional decisions. The Supreme Court, earlier this year, when it decided Sackett v. EPA, the Supreme Court in that case stated that they basically narrowed uh, the protections and the authority that the EPA had to regulate wetlands. And when we look at, you know, people may say like, okay, well, it's wetlands, Yeah, but oftentimes, you know, wetlands and other kinds of water sources are regularly connected. They're interconnected. And when those sources feed into communities who already have faced disinvestment or neglect um, from the state and from other actors to be able to have an infrastructure for clean water, then a decision like Sackett v. EPA is much more important uh, because it's undoing, number one, the protections that existed under the Clean Water Act. But now there's this environmental justice component as well because the few protections that communities actually have to actually say, hey, we need clean water. Now you have a Supreme Court that is rolling back those protections um, in a number of different spaces. And so like the Sackett case is an example of that. And then we also have unfortunately seen not even just in the clean water at 
kind of aspect. We've seen this kind of narrowing of protections in a number of different areas as well. Um, Civil rights kinds of litigation, which is important for trying to fight for clean water in communities. Yeah. And one of the things that I've seen is relating to Title VI, which I guess prohibits uh, recipients of federal financial assistance from discriminating uh, on the basis of race, color, national origin, et cetera. I understand there's been some litigation um, in that area uh, as well. Yeah. Title VI is um, one of the bedrocks, I'd say, particularly in the environmental justice kind of space, uh, because it is there's no private right of action. So the way that people are able to try to have accountability um, in the Title VI space is either they litigate it in court or they utilize um, an administrative complaint kind of context uh, in order to say, hey, this person or this company or, you know, the, the state sometimes, the county, they are acting in a way that is harmful towards um, a protected category. And Title VI has been pivotal and and necessary in bridging the conversation around, yes, you have the environment, but you have the people there as well who need to be protected. And recently, there were three cases, administrative complaints, that were filed in Louisiana. And those cases were at a stage where the EPA was you know nearly re- ready to make a decision around the Title VI administrative complaints. The community members had worked really hard, you know, and gathered all of their information. And for you know, just for everyone's understanding, it is really hard <laughs> to gather evidence, particularly in the environmental justice context, because a lot of times, you know, you have people who they've been experiencing things they know. It's an environmental issue, but there's also, you know, they're having to do this. They're not doing this full time. They live in the community. They know the issues, but a lot of them are not necessarily doing this full time. And so they're taking time out of their day, time to build out something that is um, systemic and can hopefully um, help to prove that they are experiencing a life that is different than other people um, in other communities. And So these community members and these community groups had done that and had given all the evidence to the EPA. And once it became clear to the state of Louisiana that they were actually going to be held accountable for how they had harmed these Black communities and Black residents within their state, they decided to actually file a lawsuit against the EPA uh, saying, hey, you shouldn't have involved the community as much as you did. And you shouldn't have offered guidance um, about how we could be doing better during this process. And really, you should just be talking with us as the state and the community participation and engagement component that, you know, like you're doing too much of it. And unfortunately, the EPA dropped those three cases in Louisiana. And having that situation happen was really unfortunate because, number one, we're at a time where community voice, number one, should be prioritized. And 
it is squarely within Title VI for and the, you know, in the manual for how these kinds of cases should move forward. But also, we should not be at a place where bad actors should be prioritized. Louisiana was a bad actor, and that was a bully move for this state to, instead of actually using that opportunity to talk to residents, to talk to community groups, to talk to to individuals who should be a part of wanting to make their state better, they said, actually, not only do we not want our state to be an environmentally sustainable place for all of our residents, but we don't want this to be the case you know, moving forward at all. Don't ask for their opinion because we feel like our opinion is the only one that matters. And that's a dangerous kind of place to be in where you have individuals who are in elected state positions who are saying that they do not want to contribute to us having a more sustainable future in the midst of a climate catastrophe. So the Title VI litigation is important and the the decision in how this administration moves forward is important because we are, we're in the midst of a climate disaster and really a climate emergency and it's going to take all of our legal tools in order to make sure that we can have a planet that we can be proud of. Well, and it's interesting that you talk about, you know, public participation and that it's actually very difficult to gather evidence as a private citizen that there's um, an environmental issue going on in, in, in your community. And so one of the things that I think is extremely important is having lawyers on, I don't know, the plaintiff side, I guess is the way that I call it. I'm, I'm more of a defense lawyer, but um, certainly having environmental plaintiff's lawyers, but certainly lawyers at uh, nonprofit agencies that are doing uh, the work on behalf of, of citizens that they frankly just don't have the expertise to do on their own. And I know um, that uh, your organization um, does a lot of work in this space. So just wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about you know, a few things that the NAACP is doing in the environmental justice space currently. Absolutely. And to your point, making sure that you're including lawyers and community groups and 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 lawyers who have an understanding of community lawyering and movement lawyering um, is so important because oftentimes in these battles <laughs> is really what they kind of boil down to. You need individuals who are going to be able to be nimble, to be able to help to gather that information. And they and as a lawyer, you can help individuals to understand and hopefully you'll have the framing in your mind of, OK, this is what we're going to need if we need to prove this in a number of different spaces. And so it is it's so important to have people in this fight who really want to be there, who want to work with communities, who want to make sure that the community voice is elevated and prioritized and that's exactly what we do at NACP. And so I'll talk a little bit more about Jackson, actually. So we were involved after we found out about how bad it was as it related to the intentional disinvestment of resources by the governor. We were down there in Jackson, Mississippi. I was down there oftentimes meeting with community members, meeting with our branch leaders and our state conference to understand what it was that people were experiencing. And so some of the things that I heard 
was that, you know, there were people who were elderly and yeah, there was water distribution, but they couldn't get to the water distribution. And so they were facing a number of issues because you have this Black community and you have these Black elders who weren't able to actually get to water locations. And so, and then you had people who were caring for individuals for health reasons, and they needed additional kinds of water needs, clean water needs at that time. And it was hard for them to have access to them. I talked to folks in the healthcare space who were running healthcare, community healthcare centers, and they were making hard decisions about whether or not they were going to be able to continue to run their community healthcare system during the midst of a water crisis. And so imagine people who need to access that kind of healthcare because they're not able to go to other places. Now they're not able to get critical healthcare um, and the care that they need during the midst of a water crisis that lasted for months. And then on top of that, you had students. Students were uh, immediately rushed into remote learning. One of the things that people don't think about, it takes water to run air conditioning. It, it takes water to flush toilets. It takes water for them to have cooked meals during the day. And even in talking to some of the folks in the school system, teachers were saying that they were spending a majority of their day just flushing toilets because there was no water, clean water that was running. And so they would have to themselves have to try to flush toilets when they when they went back into the school system. Um, and so it was impacting students' ability to learn. And businesses weren't able to operate, of course, and a lot of restaurants had to shut down because of the water crisis. And so the economy was actually suffering because the governor intentionally decided not to answer the requests of the mayor for assistance during the midst of a water crisis. And so I testified in front of Congress and I shared with them, the Committee on Homeland Security, that this was an issue that was systemic, but that there needed to be creative solutions that were brought to, to Jackson. And that was helpful because I think that Congress recognized that the laws that we currently had in place, these laws of every kind of larger amount of money for infrastructure has to go to the state and then the state gets to distribute it to wherever it would like, was harming Black communities. And so Congress did, they did actually uh, approve an initial amount um, to go to Jackson and then eventually a $600 million spending through the omnibus spending bill to help Jackson. But that also helped me to realize, helped us to realize that we needed the congressional kind of strategy, but we also needed to make sure that there was a legal accountability structure. And so we filed a Title VI complaint with the EPA. Right before we filed the Title VI complaint, the EPA had announced that they had just opened their Office of External Civil Rights and External Environmental Justice and Civil Rights. And so that was an opportunity for us to file a Title VI complaint under an office that was supposed to be centering the voices of community members that should be looking at environmental issues intersectionally. And the EPA opened up the investigation. Um, and so now we have an active Title VI complaint um, with the EPA right now. They're in the midst of doing their investigation. They've 
come. They've talked to community members. But that, and particularly in talking to community members, because I've done a number of town halls and drafted public education materials since then, for a lot of community members, them knowing that there was some kind of accountability um, where their voices, we intentionally made sure that we had different people from the community um, if they weren't going to actually be complainants, that they were witnesses and we used their testimony for exhibits and things like that, but that it was actually reaching another you know, party that was not just the governor who had been ignoring them for so long. And it helped the community members themselves to feel empowered and feel like they can continue to have the conversations that they had been having for forever, that clean water is a civil and human right. Well, we are coming to the end of our time together. Uh, it's clear that you and the organization are doing uh, great work in this area. Uh, any last thoughts that you wanted to share with our listeners? I would say right now we are in the midst of looking at um, these revisions within the National Environmental Policy Act. And right now we're at a time where um, the Council on Environmental Quality, it wants to make ensure that we actually, for the first time, have environmental justice really kind of front and center in in NEPA and in uh, in these revisions. And so I think that the Biden administration and CEQ recognizes that environmental justice cannot just be um, a talking point anymore, but we really have to be looking at it from a legal aspect as well in the Council on Environmental Quality, recognizing that there needs to be a definition of environmental justice in the revisions um, as it relates to the implementation of NEPA is a really important step. And I think that there is a lot of opportunity, particularly for folks within the legal space, to really ensure that environmental justice is a part of your thinking because it is definitely going to be a part of all of our work Um, in some way, shape, or form. And it's just a matter of making sure that we are all understanding what it actually means to actually reach environmental justice. Got it. And if folks wanted to talk to you about uh, kind of the future of environmental justice, wanted to learn more about what you do, what's the best way for folks to reach out to you? I check my social media uh, pretty often. So people can reach out to me on Instagram. Uh, It's just my name, Abray underscore Connor. Um, or on Twitter, but then I also um, am available if people want to reach out to me by LinkedIn. And I definitely, you know, appreciate having conversations with uh, law students and young lawyers because I've been I've been there and understand how hard it can be to try to navigate a space that you may be navigating for the first time. Great. Well, Abra Counter, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Thanks for all of your great work in the space. Thank you. Thank you to Disco for sponsoring Litigation Radio. Disco makes the law work better for everyone with cutting-edge solutions that leverage AI, cloud computing, and data analytics to help legal professionals accelerate e-discovery and document review. Learn more at csdisco.com. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. I'm pleased to welcome back Latasha Ellis to the show. Latasha is a litigator in the Washington, D.C. office of Hunt and Andrews Kurth, focusing on insurance coverage cases. Welcome back to the show, Latasha. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. I understand you're going to be giving us tips about settlement negotiations today. What's your quick tip? 
Yes, I am. So I know that we've had some tips in the past about settlements, um, negotiations, but because we're nearing the end of the year, um, there are a number of companies who are trying to get certain litigation off of their plates. So I thought that we would just remind everyone about some best practices from negotiated settlements. So, you know, as litigators, we are taught that our objective is to win, win in the courtroom. And it's, you know, in some cases can be a a matter of pride, but throughout law school and certainly once we're in private practice um, or even when we are in house, uh, we're trained to zealously advocate for our clients Um, And in short, many of us are taught to fight. So sometimes when clients retain us, again, if you're in-house and you're representing a corporation, they often expect and demand that we win. But I think it's important to think about what does winning mean for clients? Sometimes it certainly means a total victory, vindication at trial, or maybe even winning a dispositive motion at summary judgment. But for others, winning may mean just negotiating a settlement. And I actually settled a case last week that I thought had zero chance of winning. Um, And what it really hinged on is the fact that winning to my client had progressed to something different um, last week than what it was a year before when we had filed the litigation. So regardless of which version of the win that the client wants, of course, getting there requires some strategic thinking and preparation and an effective execution of the plan. So to that end, um, when preparing for battle in the negotiation arena, I wanted to share just a few thoughts. Uh, The first thought being, or the first tip, being to understand that compromise means giving something up. You know, you cannot always approach settlement negotiations the same way that you would as if you were arguing a case to the jury. Um, So you can't go in expecting the other side to finally see the light and admit total defeat. That certainly has never happened for me because the opposite side, the opposition, they think that their perspective is valid as well. So you and your client have to be willing to give an inch or two or three um, and having that thought mentality helps increase your chances of settling. The second is being prepared, you know, know your facts, know your claims, know your governing law and the settlement that I had last week, the other side was really not prepared. Um, They had referenced a number of facts that were not accurate. And the mediator picked up on that right away. And I think that in some respects, it may have gave me, it certainly gave me a ton of credibility with my client. um, But it also gave the mediator an understanding of the fact that the other side was not completely prepared. And so he kind of governed himself accordingly. You know, lawyers love to be the smartest ones in the room. And so we should certainly prove that um, and demonstrate that to our clients by being prepared and knowing the facts of our case. The third tip is to be honest. No case is without weakness. In fact, most cases have some significant factual, legal, and sometimes jurisdictional weaknesses. And so it's important to acknowledge those weaknesses by admitting the obvious, um, which is the fact that litigation does carry risks, um, and just go from there. Uh, That, again, will also increase your or enhance your credibility with your client. It makes you appear reasonable to the mediator um, and sometimes to the other side. And those can be um, some great traits when trying to negotiate a settlement. And the final tip that I'll share is that 
when negotiating, there is not a one size fits all approach. People negotiate in different ways. I've had negotiations where the other side was very adamant about going back and forth with numbers and just not even wanting to have any sort of lengthy discussion about the rationale in those numbers. I've also had negotiations where the other side has wanted to use a bracket, you know, a high, low, or ceiling, or the floor, or making a move based on percentages and wanting to have some lengthy narrative explanation about why their percentage was appropriate. Either way, the point is that there really is no perfect way to negotiate a settlement, and so it can be helpful to be flexible None of those different techniques are my favorite, but, you know, it helps sometimes to be open to using that other person's method and can help you um, in some instances get to a settlement. So just to reiterate the tips that I have, compromise means giving up something. Be prepared. Be honest about your case. um, And remember that one size does not fit all. So Hopefully you can employ these tips when attempting to resolve disputes and get some wins for your client. Excellent. Latasha, thanks so much for being on the show today and sharing those practical tips. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all we have for our episode today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's show. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can contact me at dscriven-young at pecklaw.com and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting you in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the Women in Litigation Joint CLE Conference in San Diego, taking place November 1st through the 3rd. Join us as we highlight women leading for success in the courtroom, in the judiciary, and in the profession. Programming will focus on trial skills, insurance litigation, products liability litigation, and securities litigation. Connect with leading litigators, judges, and in-house counsel from around the country. To find out more and for registration information, please go to ambar.org slash litigate her. That's litigate H-E-R. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section. Thanks also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio contact committee, Haley Maple and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Next time.